here we are. Here we are. Here Hello, we are. everyone. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, bringing to you a very special episode of Finding Peaks today. Episode 100. Woo! Yeah. Mm. Birthday 100. cake, yeah. candles, all the things. You know how we like to party in America. <laughs> Sober party here Sugar. at Finding Peaks, though. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm talking Absolutely. about. Yeah. Absolutely. All it's right. coffee. Caffeine. Coffee, caffeine. We're ready to go. 100th episode. I've got the great Lauren Atencio. Hello. Clinical director, men's program, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. LAC, LPCC. Yes. So almost. almost all the clinical things. Almost. We just have a couple months. I'll be at LPC. And then she can wow. be all yeah. the clinical things from yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Is, which is great. And then Clint Nicholson, chief operating officer, LPC, yeah. LAC, all the clinical things. All wow. things. I so in, in recognition of episode 100, for all the viewers joining us today, if you've watched past episodes, and I say all the clinical things, that's LPC, LAC, in the state of Colorado, you can basically do what you want. Yeah, right? for sure. Okay? When you're, Anything. When you're yeah. LAC and training for the LPC. you've seen shrinking, you know what we can yeah. do. Yes. <laughs> you can do almost all the things with the LAC, right? Yes. So, yeah. But Lauren's getting there. Yeah. Close. Wouldn't doubt you for a second. Thank you. All right. Well, we don't have uh, the other hosts in town. They've got kids. They're out of town. Jason's in London. Chris is in Phoenix celebrating Same being away. Time. So for the sake of this episode, they will have no input. And that's fair. Yeah. So uh, if in, in, in kind of foreshadowing how this is going to go as an episode, we've decided to kind of go back through some reels of prior episodes. Uh, to kind of re-engage into some discussions that have been valuable and important to us um, here at uh, Finding Peaks. And um, one of the, so we're going to go through four main topics here. We're going to talk about trauma, mental health approaches to care, substance use disorder, and kind of the future of the industry and kind of where Peaks finds or sees itself within that sort of framework. Uh, and uh, to kick this off, uh, you know, trauma has been kind of a, a feels like a two cent word in our industry at this mm. point. They didn't work on my trauma. I need to work on my trauma. That'll help me stop using drugs and alcohol. Um, the reason I keep relapsing is because I haven't worked on this, you know, that type of thing. But what I want to be clear about here, and I think what we've defined within these episodes is that uh, trauma is the experience after the hardship. And I think that's really important to quantify. Uh, in relationship to the discussion, because I think sometimes we think about it as just the hardship, as if we're just going to excavate the hardship, the unfortunate experience that took place, and then trauma is resolved. We're really the experience and the emotions and the story we tell ourselves after the hardship is what trauma is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, if, before kind of diving into these episodes, did I mess anything up? You guys want to clean up anything in that framework, or are we are we right sized here? No, I think no. yeah, yeah trauma is really about what's happening today, not about what happened in the past. Yeah. So um, I think that that is an often a misconception. We think of trauma as historical, and trauma is actually something that exists in the present. So really exploring it from that lens makes, uh, gives it just like a different feel and a sort of different perspective. I agree. I think that so many clients, so many people in general, they get so stuck in the context of the trauma, of the story, right? We love storytelling. And it has nothing to do with the story, exactly what you said. It has to do with the impact of an event and how we react to it in any given situation. So I think you guys nailed it on the head. All righty. Well, um, 
Kuv's going to do it first. going to put us up on the screen, but this first clip is um, by a past guest, also a, a past uh, uh, employee at the highest level. He's a past chief clinical officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. His name's Alan Cook, LPC, LAC, all the clinical all things the as well, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, the old guard, as they might say. <laughs> I think he would appreciate that now yeah. moving into his retirement. Um, but he had some uh, important insights that I think uh, will support this discussion and what we're uh, getting after here today. So without further ado, Alan Cook. It is not the trauma that has caused them the problem. It is what they took away about themselves, what they believed about themselves, what they believe they lost, or what they believe they disempowered about themselves, or what they had to protect themselves from that's important to release and relearn. Because most of the time our traumas happen sometime in history. That's the nature of trauma. It's in the past. And we forget that no matter when our trauma happened, we were different then, but we've anchored that trauma in that experience, especially childhood trauma. We were children, we were helpless, we didn't have a lot of skills. So we believe about that trauma that it's true today, even though our skills have changed. So if I approach that from shame, because when somebody grows up, what they bring about that trauma is their shame. Well, why couldn't I take care of myself? Why couldn't I stop that? I must be a bad person. If I can release the shame today, then I can remind them that they have different skills today than they had then and link it differently. Yeah, yeah I think first and foremost for the, those on the YouTube channels and witnessing that. It was massive. Clinton. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I had to double take. Like, yeah. I looked at you here, there, I, where was your mouth? Yeah, it was under my mustache, <laughs> my moustache. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was hefty. By yeah. how we have changed, right? Exactly. Glad we're acknowledging yeah. that, because that's all I could think about. <laughs> so, the so, shame, for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the shame of it all. So, so. I think Alan, yeah. you know, brings forward what, you know, we kind of discussed prior to it, but I think in, in adding to that, right, that he's adding that, that language of shame to it mm -hmm. uh, as a processor and experience. And I think it's important to validate that there's a hardship when he's talking about maybe younger folks who experience hardships that resulting in emotional takeaways of trauma, that something took place in that time for which they were just a little kid. They couldn't protect themselves. They couldn't ask for help. They didn't have the tools and the capacity to negotiate the situation they were in, in, in that lack of control moving away from the hardship, we start to form a story about it, right? That uh, where Alan brings the discussion to is now we're in this future moment. We have a completely different set of skill sets. We have a diff completely different framework of empowerment. Um, and, but we're still carrying the same story, even though our condition has entirely changed. And I think, you know, um, open chair and these types of clinical interventions is one example of something that allowed me to kind of, in my own journey, restate my truth, right? And then empower myself in this new condition in that framework. So um, without further ado, what other insights might we take away from this or what else would we want to add to, you know, kind of what Alan put forward there? I think that one thing that he touched on is how we go back to like, I'm a bad person because I have, I've never been able to handle this in a way or wasn't able to handle this as a kid. And I think that is just a fundamentally flawed kind of thought because how are we going to put the responsibility of a kid to regulate emotions that only humans should or adults should be experience, right? I think the other part of it too is how do we not allow 
those feelings, thoughts, behaviors, whatever it is, control us in our adult life. I know you and I, Brandon, have talked about this a lot too, is like we have the ability to not allow the trauma to control us, but instead step in and control it and kind of take the power back, which I think is the biggest thing that we try to do with clients is empower them to find power within their trauma. Because it's like you are letting this take over your life. You are deciding that like this is just it for you at times. And so being able to take that power back and be like, wow, I can change my thoughts. I can change my feelings, I can adapt to my emotions, is so huge within that process as well, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what I would probably add, and um, my experience with trauma is more based in sort of brain. And you know, when, these, when the traumatic event happens and we start telling ourselves this story, or we start um, basically incorporating that trauma as part of our identity, it actually changes the brain. It changes the way the brain processes information. It changes the way the brain allows um, emotional experiences to be uh, kind of perceived and processed. And so trauma is not just about the thought. It's also about the physiological impact that it's had on our ability to perceive and engage with the world. So you're really kind of um, through talk therapy, I think you get to gain this insight. I think you get to sort of understanding, begin to unravel the narrative. But it's really through experience, repetition, through acknowledging in real time and in real relationships and real interactions uh, how you are responding and then how do you want to respond differently. So there's this other component as well, which is a little less, um, for me, it's, it feels less mystical. but. Um, I'm just not a very mystical kind of guy. So I, I like, uh, I, I, I see trauma through that lens and I see part of the process of healing trauma as actually healing the brain as well. So, yeah. yeah. And so uh, for me, I definitely, I, th I think it's gonna be important, it's coming up, I, you know, in taking power back, accountability, you start to form this notion of responsibility. And yeah. so I think this is gonna be consistent with all of this, right? How do we, uh, how do we nurture somebody's acceptance of their own responsibility within the journey, whether it's trauma, substance use disorder, mental health, right. and so forth, um, and you know, uh, empower them and uh, acknowledge the courage that it takes to move forward. So I'm excited to get to that. But a year, almost a year and a half after Alan was on the set, yeah. we brought TJ Woodward yeah. over, out from California and Los Angeles yeah. to come in and give us uh, his own insights into his conscious recovery approach. We did a staff training on that, invited him into the studio to talk more about it. And uh, as you'll see in the clip, I could not help myself in asking TJ, what is this trauma thing? Lay it out for us. Because again, it's, I believe it's in alignment with what we're doing at Peaks and what we see as a value proposition within this, these clinical approaches. So without further ado, TJ Woodward, hit it, Coove. Well, you know, my follow-up there is the trauma word, Jason. You know how much I, I was, love I was waiting for you it to as a topic. But right. you know, for the viewers out there, we've, we've challenged trauma. We've walked through it. We've done episodes on it. But, I think, you know, for me in reading Conscious Recovery in your text and also going through uh, the experience over the past few days, I think your view of trauma is correct. And <laughs> what I mean by that is that I think sometimes as an industry, we hyper-focus on the hardship, the actual traumatic event itself. We somehow have to uproot that, get it out the door, and then we can sort of continue forward on our journey. But that's not the focus from your description of trauma and would just love for the viewers to hear uh, your side of that tale. 
Yeah, and trauma is, you know, I'm using a very broad umbrella, if you will, about trauma, and that's any experience, honestly, where we're not seen as a whole and perfect being. And so if we use that definition, mm. we can say that being on planet Earth is a traumatic experience, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Sure. And so it's not, and, and we talked about this a lot in the experience, and I love that you're asking this, because it's not what happened, it is what happened, but it's not only about what right. happened. It's really about what I decided about myself mm-hmm. as a result of what happened. So one, you know, we could have the exact same experience and mm-hmm. it could be very traumatic for you and it's like, no big deal for me, right? Yeah. Um, I have had experiences that would seem fairly innocuous, like not a big deal to people, but it was very traumatic for me. Not because of what happened, but because it was that moment that I decided I was stupid, I wasn't lovable, I wasn't good enough. And this isn't logical, right? right? This right. is not a logical process because as an adult, I'm like, oh, I have evidence to show that I'm not stupid, but I believed it so deeply that I couldn't read well, I could not write well. Like that idea, that belief, or that frequency was showing up so consistently and I couldn't talk myself out of it. Yeah. So, you know, um, I don't remember which trauma specialist said this, but trauma doesn't show up as a memory, it shows up as a reaction. Mm-hmm. So the way we work with trauma and the way conscious recovery approaches it is what's showing up for you right now, what's present within you, where is this in your body? Can we be present with it? Because mm-hmm. with addiction, we're trying to run from it. Right. right. And many of us have spent decades, some of us, running from the traumatic experience through addiction. And if we can get a client just to be present for 30 seconds and realize, oh, wow, I can do that. That's where we actually can start to heal the trauma without saying what happened to you when you, when you were seven. Mm-hmm. Beautiful viewers. That's what I'm talking about right there. That's, <laughs> that's what Brandon's been trying to say. That's what I've been trying time. to say for the last hundred episodes. <laughs> and there it is. Yeah, there it is. You know, Let's wrap it up. I don't know yeah. if this is one of those things like where we're like, you know, putting things out there just to get back at our own narrative here or not. But I think our reality is that um, I think at least my common uh, experiences with family systems is that it's this working on this trauma thing rather than the behavior in the moment and the, the message that we're carrying forward. And so I think, uh, one, I mean, this is how we experience trauma at Peaks Recovery Centers. This is how we talk, this is how we approach it. And I think it's consistent within our field when you start talking to other professionals as well, too, that this is the true narrative. And so for like the viewers out there, not trying to just insist on this is the path, but sure. to help family systems resolve for themselves what the challenge is here at the mm-hmm. end of the day. And you know, uh, you know, without shying away from it, you know, the client or you know, patient comes into Peaks and says, well, the last treatment program didn't work on my trauma, therefore I kept using, but then was using meth for the last six months coming back into our program. We're not really in a position under that scenario due to the increased craving states and all the other kind of fallout that may have come from that use in this particular example to really nurture that. And so, you know, from here, I want to talk about, I, w- I want to dive into personal responsibility about, and your guys' thoughts on this, um, but the challenges to working on trauma whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. Within time-limited mm-hmm. approaches, inpatient care, uh, and so forth. I mean, you know, when it comes to an insurance company, I can convey to the users out there, they're not interested in trauma care taking place in detox. I mean, <laughs> right. that's, that's, you know, that's being facetious, right? I, that's obvious, bit. it feels like, but in inpatient care, you know, the lights are turning on a little bit. That's not what they're interested in, right? They're interested in the biomedical, the stabilization, those sorts yeah. of things. Trauma 
is not a biomedical condition, at least to the payers in this regard. It becomes more mental health or those sort of tertiary ASAM 4, 5, and 6 mm -hmm. criteria. Um, but without diving into that tangent you know, and so forth, we're talking about limitations for actually being able to deliver these services. And the requirement really becomes like, okay, when and where can we work on this and actually move through these processes with patient care? Or in, I know at least I think in our experiences at you know, Peaks, we're, we're giving it to them like, you know, throughout the curriculum, but sort of a sprinkling approach rather than a very direct, we're gonna sit down and do this now. Yeah. I mean, I think the generalized answer to that is that there are a lot of clients, people just who are not ready to go there yet. I, if you throw all of these interventions at someone and say, okay, you're gonna process your trauma right now and we're gonna do it, and they have no sense of grounding, they have no sense of self, they have nothing to kind of hold on to for safety, they're going to flood and we're, we are at risk for re-traumatizing those people because they're feeling all of those same emotions in that moment and if we don't have a way to contain that, then it becomes really, really messy. Um, I think there's this other part of it too of like, everybody's trauma, the way we work on it is going to look different, right? Mm -hmm. If you have extensive trauma and you come in and we can't sit down and do everything, like we can't talk about all the trauma you've ever endured, but what we can do is we can talk about the maladaptive behaviors that come out of that trauma. We can talk about the thinking patterns that you've adapted because, you know, as TJ said, I feel stupid. Okay, you feel stupid. We can we can hone in on those things. We don't have to go back in the trenches in order to allow to manage some of these symptoms that come along with it and, you know, not hurt them in the meantime or flood them essentially. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about it and I'm my mind is actually going to the idea that we start working on the client's trauma as soon as we answer the admissions line. Like, I actually think that the way that we think about working on trauma and the way that you actually work on trauma are two very different things. Absolutely. I think our, pers and a lot of that is just kind of social stigma, uh, representation in media, that kind of stuff. But just by identifying that somebody thinks they're stupid, that is, we've started the process of working on trauma because we're starting to identify a narrative, right? Something that needs to be disrupted. Uh, even the craving state in detox, when we're working through somebody who's going through a craving, we're working on their trauma because what they're experiencing is a drop of the protective mechanism that they've been using to deal with the trauma and a rise of the feelings that they're actually trying to push away, right? So we're, yeah. we're experiencing and we start to navigate that trauma moment in real time, right there in that moment, we're working on your trauma with you. So I think when, um, I think clients can actually be a little, um, uh, I don't know, I, I think that that's this is a generalization, but generally speaking, I think clients want that big excavation moment. They want that big time of like, oh, we're gonna go in, we're gonna take that trauma, or look at that trauma, tell what it's all about, and then throw it away. And that is not how trauma works. Right. It's mm -hmm. trauma is, a part of us, it's a part of our identity. It's a, and it's in these little pieces and moments and, and snippets that we actually start to cut away the, the kind of um, the tethers that bear us down based on our tra traumatic experiences and the identity that we've developed around them. Does that mean? No, I think you said that beautifully. And I even would say too, like with detox, we're working with medical 
on the physical trauma of detox, yeah, absolutely. right? You have a client come in, they've been drinking for 10 years, and they are know that they're walking into being sick, our medical team has come up with a beautiful way to support them through that. Our clinical team is checking in every single day. I think you said it so beautifully is like, we're, we're doing this every step of the way without them even knowing. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. to say, oh, I need to work on my trauma. Exactly what you said, trauma goes nowhere. It's there, it yeah. happened, it's, it's, it's all about how you then perceive yourself right. moving forward. No, I, I do think it's important to give the client credit that they have to have that moment of, I want to work on this. Right. Yeah. I want to change. Like there is the, in the end, uh, you know, the, the goal of any therapy is change, right? And so if for them to be able to show up and just say, I want to do this different, that is really the, a huge first step. And that's what, again, like triggers the phone call and then we answer and it's like, cool, well, you've just started your trauma work. But, right. You know, we're, we're already there. You're on right. a journey with us at that point. Right. So. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight kind of in the sense of, you know, uh, around these three words, action, thoughts, emotions, right. that the first step in dealing with that is to call a place like, you know, Peaks and say, I need help yeah. and to negotiate that. And uh, that's a step forward in accountability, recognition of Absolutely. problem and responsibility that I'm going to do the next step, whatever that is, so I can start negotiating the other two principles of thoughts and emotions. But you arrive at a place like Peaks and what ends up happening, right? 30 days later, it's like, I feel great. I'm going to go back home and live with mom, you know, ah. without the extension of all the things we still have to work on at the end of the day. Right. You can feel really good, really protected, really empowered in a place like uh, Peaks once all the, you know, sort of fighting us at yeah. the end of the day kind of, kind of calms down at the end of it. And, and the reason I talk about responsibility and accountability, as harsh as it may sound, or it might seem like maybe I'm belittling, you know, past patients who've walked through different programs, maybe they overpromised and underdelivered. Maybe they said we're going to do trauma whatsoever. And they didn't do anything of the sort, and they threw the 12 you know, steps at them, or whatever the case might be. I yeah. can understand where, or appreciate where our industry as a whole might be off-putting uh, in that regard. But there are very real scenarios where patients come in, know they have to continue to work on that, and stop doing that. And w what I want to inspire here, because I think it's consistent, it's one of the great values I, I, th I think of the 12 steps, is that accountability and representation of responsibility and holding people to that. Um, but the kind of framework I want to set up for it is that I get why it would be challenging to sort of like move forward in the process, right? Because I have this thing that I know that works or it works most of the time or mm -hmm. at least for me in this context, you know, smoking pot, doing hair, whatever it is, I know what that is. As miserable as that is, at least it's comfortable because I know it, right? And I think what our patients often want is, okay, when I'm doing this clinical intervention, I want to see so far out where this is going mm -hmm. and the promise and recognition that I'll be fine when I get to the other side of this journey you guys are putting me on. Because mm -hmm. this is a strong pull here. But what we can't do is walk them through that whole journey. That is their journey to walk through, Absolutely. right, at the end of the day. And the only person who can do that is the individual taking responsibility for that path, as discomforting it is. But clinically speaking, of course, right, that's what aftercare is for, community mm -hmm. is for, the rooms are for, all of those nurturing components to instill and help guide that person forward. So with that, thoughts, ideas, insights? I think I just want to add a little bit too is that like trauma responses can also be very praised in the world as well and so they're very much overlooked and hmm. our clients like to fall back into those patterns because they've been praised so i think about like hypervigilance anxiety those different things if 
I'm guilty of overworking all the time and because of that anxiety because of that fear of not being good enough but my also my whole life have been praised by that so how mm. am I going to look at something that I've that has really much benefited me but is also kind of detriment to me as well I think it's all, all about looking at trauma from every angle and how it's good how it's bad how it's affected you how it's made you better in a way you know all of these different mm. aspects and like you said, there's just no way this can be done in 45 days. There's no way this can be done in a year. Like trauma work is years of work and you have to consistently take responsibility for yourself. You have to consistently challenge those thoughts when they're there. Embrace the emotions when they become uncomfortable. Like this is the hardest work you'll do and there's such big reward at the end because of it. Yeah, I mean the initial reward is like, like total emotional discomfort and physical discomfort at the same yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, I mean like the initial, uh, so when you're looking at like a, a kind of a reward pathway, it's not very effective early mm. recovery. It's very, very hard. And we also live in this wonderful shame-based society, which just kicks people right back into those old patterns. It starts, it will actually turn up the volume of the, the narratives and stories that people have started to develop about themselves regarding their past traumatic events. So, I mean, there are so many things that push against an individual who is on this journey. And I think that what we really see in early, the early stages of treatment is just this desperation. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're just, we don't talk about how to be healthy in our culture. We don't talk about what it means to be whole. We don't talk about what, we look at wholeness as like a joke almost. It's like, oh, you feel good about yourself? <laughs> well, there's something wrong with you. You know, it's like, you must be on something. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're, we really almost belittle the, what it means to, to, to go through the, the, the suffering that helps you get over the suffering, right. you know? And there is a, uh, and it feels very antithetical and it feels, um, really contradictory. At the same time, I think we see it all, we see it every single day that there is this moment of, I have to walk through the shadows to get to that light, you know? Yeah. Um, and it yeah. goes into what you were saying too, is like, we live in a society as well of instant gratification. So right. I didn't get sober because they didn't work on my trauma. Well, that's not really how it works. You can't just work on your trauma and then everything's cured. Right. And right. I think sometimes our clients do get so fixated on like, okay, this empty chair is going to cure me. I'm going to feel better. Everything, all my thoughts are going to go away. And it's, it's so much more than that, that I think it can be a, a little bit defeating at times. Cause it's mm -hmm. like, man, I did all of this work and I still feel the same sometimes that's normal. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. about kind of accepting that as yeah. a process. And I think that that's part of our actual program is this kind of, and this is, goes back to like ACT as well, like just sort of radical acceptance. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to, I'm not gonna leave here like perfect. In mm -hmm. fact, if I'm trying for perfection, I'm setting myself up for failure. So there's this kind of realistic um, kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, it's, I love kind of stuff like this. Like it's very pragmatic, my favorite word, um, <laughs> approach where it's like, no, this is gonna be, this is the beginning of your journey, you know, and your recovery actually starts when you leave. It's not while you're here. While you're here, we make it, it, you'll see the light. You can see that it's there, that there is this opportunity, there is this path forward, but you have to walk it on your own. You know, like we, we can give you some tools, man, and, and, and we can really, and, and we can help you see that you are valuable and worthy of this journey, but we can't make the journey for you. Yeah, totally. And, you know, one quick metaphor here before kind of moving on is it comes from, you know, I've been talking to you about a Clint, the yeah. Dopamine Nation book, but it, yeah. it, it's a, it's a, 
it's an exploration of dopamine and how it works. And its, and its foundation is dopamine works like this. In, in, in the dopamine centers of the brain, wherever they're located, I'm not a neuroscientist, but they're in there somewhere. And the whole goal of <laughs> dopamine like, or, or yeah. any biological structure is to be in homeostasis, mm -hmm. is to not be too much on the side of pain or too much on the side of pleasure. When it's too much on the side of pleasure, it tries to resort back to pain to get it centered and that's that type of thing. And that's where we experience with individuals who start using opioids on the pleasure side of thing to quell pain in the background actually end up experiencing more pain because the uh, dopamine centers of the brain are trying to regulate it back to homeostasis. So as oddly as it is, when we shoot for the thing that gives us the surplus of feel goods, yeah. the draw down to that is that it's going to pull us right back there. That's the process of homeostasis. And so uh, if that's true, you know, when people use drugs and alcohol to quell that, we know, if this is true about dopamine, that drugs and alcohol will never, ever, ever, ever resolve the issue of trauma or provide so much you know, uh, relief that you'll never experience the pain again. And oddly enough, the more you use drugs and alcohol, the more the pain is going to increase. Absolutely. And so it starts to lose its foundation. Like we've talked about Gabramante episodes and so forth, it almost works. <laughs> so close. So close. So close. close. Swing and a miss. Though. Swing and yeah, a miss. Swing though, and a miss. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And that unless we're talking about a fairly rare situation in which somebody just needs trauma work, right? Somebody doesn't abuse drugs and alcohol, somebody doesn't have depression, anxiety, then you can go right into trauma work and start working on it, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality, is, and that might not be true, but we're talking about a rare exception to where, yeah. what I'm getting at, where a monotherapy intervention mm -hmm. is gonna work for the individual to um, decrease suffering, find that homeostasis, and then they're back out there in the world. The complexity of the patients we see, I don't think is that case. And so we can't just work on the trauma, just like we'll learn now in the mental health approaches, we can't just give them the pills, you know, to quell mental health anguish, that's not gonna work, right? We need sort of a collective action here. And again, the reason kind of for walking the viewers on episode 100 here through these approaches. So um, without further ado, diving into the mental health uh, approaches into care here, uh, we know that one in four Americans uh, in the United States are on psychotropic medications right now in America. 25%, yep. one in four people in America one in 20 children and adolescents are on similar medications. And of those one in four adults, nearly half are on uh, SSRIs to manage a depressive episode. From 1995, as we've talked about on the Stephen Alardi episodes, it's also uh, realized in the Dopamine Nation book, it's on the Sebastian Younger episodes. From 1995 to 2015, we have a significant increase in the amount of medications that individuals are receiving, psychotropic medications for mental health anguish, and yet the problem has not persisted, not one iota. It has not dropped, it has not come down, right? And so we've talked about on these episodes, um, you know, that these interventions like an SSRI may work anywhere from 15 to 20%, or excuse me, 15 to 30% of the time, yet 75% of adults in America are treated with just pills alone. Mm -hmm. 15 to 30% efficacy, 75% of the population suffering, right? Yeah. We know in the maths, they're pretty basic, it's not working. Mm -hmm. And so what we aren't challenging here is whether or not it works for some people, sure. And it does help, especially in our spiderweb approach of, quelling symptomology, now we're gonna hit them with movement and talk therapy and you know all of that type of stuff. Um, but we know it's not sustainable in and of itself and on its own and that's what we're trying to draw attention to 
by bringing on guests such as uh, Dr. Stephen Alardi, a PhD clinical researcher on depression, wrote the book, The Depression Cure, uh, and he does his clinical research out of University of Kansas, and I think he's onto something. You know, Clint, you stated something. There's something wrong with our society and the way we shame people, right? Yeah. And uh, Dr. Alardi's gonna go as far as to call it a disease of civilization. There's something about our contemporary society for which we are not biologically suited for. So uh, without further ado, Let's dive right into uh, the Alardi episode. Hit us, Coof. Why are the depression drugs not as effective as we wish they were? I mean, they certainly help a lot of people, don't get me wrong. Millions of lives have been improved, but they're not the game changers for many people that we need them to be, that we want them to be. Why not? In part, because when you give a drug, like our SSRIs, our SSRIs, SNRIs, to ramp up serotonin signaling, very often you're simultaneously pushing down on the dopamine. System. Huh. That's why we have sexual side effects as one of the most common side effects, right? You're pushing down on the, on the reward circuitry. Well, that's, that's not really what we want in depression. So we need to augment that effect with other things. And you know, because we've talked about it a lot, that I'm a big, big proponent of the idea that there is no magic bullet mm -hmm. in depression. There's no single thing, fancy word, monotherapy. There's no monotherapy approach. There's no magic drug that's going to completely cure forever a person's depression most of the time. There are, you know, rare exceptions, but um, the drugs have a place. They have a role, but we have to augment it. We have to do all the things. We can't just rely on the one thing. We can't rely on the monotherapy. Um, so that's, that's just the first premise I wanted to put out there. Uh, I know there, there are a lot so, of different. So I'm, I'm curious now too, you know, and um, certainly we're presenting to the team earlier, which I'm so grateful for. It was so uh, informed and educational. But why, why, how are we in a situation in which, I mean, maybe it's just be science or we just don't have the application for it yet, but why don't we have drugs that do the dopamine thing rather than the serotonin? We, thing? we do. Okay. So the one that probably a lot of the audience have heard of is, is the generic is bupropion. Yeah. The, the trade name is either, depending on whether you're taking it for smoking cessation or depression, the trade name is Wellbutrin for depression or, or Zyban for smoking cessation, same drug. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is that depression is often, and by often I mean over half the time, accompanied by a lot of anxiety. And if you give a drug like Wellbutrin, it's like, oh, okay, so we're gonna ramp up dopamine, that's good. We're gonna ramp up reward signaling, that's good. Occasionally, a patient will even have spontaneous orgasm on Wellbutrin. <laughs> okay. Um, side effect of- podcast, right <laughs> <there>. <laughs> yeah. we, we will circle back around to the whole thing. There, there was a Grey's Anatomy episode, by the way. For Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, it's no joke. It can ramp up reward signaling but it can also ramp up anxiety okay. because the circuits are kind of cross-wired a little bit, which it's, it's a long story we don't have to go into. But so, um, well, what else can we use? Well, stimulants, right? Mm -hmm. ADHD meds like, um, like Adderall, like methylphenidate, Ritalin, like Vyvanse. All these drugs also ramp up dopamine. Can they be helpful in depression? Yes, absolutely. Are they commonly used? No, why? Because, well, they're controlled substances, A, have a high addiction potential, or at least moderate addiction potential, B, but C, they also ramp up anxiety. Mm. And so a lot of prescribers are very loath to use them, even though we've got these dopamine deficits in depression 
that if anything, a lot of times the medications that we're throwing at depression can make worse. So then it's like, all right, well, what can we do that's non-pharmacological to ramp up dopamine? And it turns out, thank God, there are lots of things like physical activity, like ambient sunlight exposure, which is about 100 times brighter than indoor lighting. And light is a drug. Literally, photons of light are drugs that hit specialized receptors in the back of the eye, in the retina, that have a broadband connection to the center of the brain, the hypothalamus. And they not only renormalize our body clock, which gets out of sync and depression, not only regulate our sleep, regulate our hormones, but kick up dopamine signaling. So we probably all had this experience. When we go out on a bright, sunny day, like we happen to be enjoying today, um, if we go on a long hike or something, regardless of the activity level, we feel energized, we feel stimulated, and often we have better focus because of that sort of stimulant-like effect. When people are depressed, though, what do they do? They, they, they don't go outside. They crawl into a cave. Their brain is giving them a signal to shut down, pull away, withdraw, and part of effective clinical work with depressed populations is validating for them, like, look, your brain is telling you that you're sick. Your brain is telling you, just like when you had the flu, get away from everybody, crawl into a cave, lick your wounds, rest tight for a couple weeks till you heal. And when you have the flu, that's great. Listen to the brain. When you have depression, that's the last thing in the world you want to do because that's going to make it worse. Um, and so a lot of the threading the needle with depressed patients is validating, yes, of course you feel like shutting down. Yes, of course you don't want to be around other people. Yes, of course you have no energy and you have no initiative and you're suffering and you're hurting. But we have to partner together to help you not listen to these signals from your brain that are actually broken signals right now. Mm -hmm. And if we, can, if we can pull off that particular clinical trick, then we're actually ramping up dopamine signaling. And that's the part that I think so many people don't get. They're like, well, wait a minute. If you have a brain chemistry problem, the only possible way to fix it is to throw drugs at it or to you know, put some powerful magnets on the brain and call it TMS or you know, do electroshock therapy or something very somatic. But what we know from the realm of neuroscience, the realm that I'm trained in, is experience changes the brain. Hmm. And Activity changes the brain, and the food we eat changes the brain, and our ambient light exposure changes the brain. So all the things we think of as like, oh, my grandma could have told me to go get some fresh air. My grandma could have told me, oh, go get some sun. Oh, be active. But grandma didn't know that this is like powerful, powerful, psychoactive sort of intervention. Mm -hmm. So there we are. Uh, <laughs> Uh, super grateful to know Dr. Alardi. Been able to befriend him now and knowing him for, I think, almost uh, six years now. And uh, there's something, you know, in, in, the few, uh, in this next clip, we'll talk about like his shtick and that type of thing. But, um, you know, that you highlighted, Clint, there is something big about disease of civilization, right? You know, there is mm -hmm. a shtick, there is a narrative that, you know, is being concluded here where society is really affecting the individual in a really large way that when we look at tribal ancestral selves and societies, we don't really see the same symptomology. And if we had did, we would have died because we had no interventions like peaks recovery, you know, medications moving, all that type yeah. of stuff. Uh, but in what we're speaking to and why that was the first video is uh, it's, it's again, you're hearing it from him. 
okay, we can throw these monotherapeutic strategies at people, but look at all the complications, you know, with yeah. it, uh, that you would, you know, be careful where you take Wellbutrin in the world, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> in that regard, as he, as he yeah. states, but um, it, it might be the case, rarely though, that the SSRI is going to help clean up a lot of the situation, but in yeah. reality, it actually comes with a lot of baggage, potentially. It doesn't mean yeah. we're not going to use it. It just means we need to be aware of that and find alternative solutions. And what I think he is conveying and I think we've adopted from that spiderweb approach is kind of thrown, you know, the kitchen sink at the individual between physical exercise, let's get you up. If we can't get you in front of the sun, let's shine a light on you. You know, yeah. we're going to use TMS, but we're not going to treat it as a monotherapeutic strategy, uh, you know, in that regard. And I think that's the essence of this, but in a world where you can go, say, drink alcohol and maybe quell that to Britain more immediately, though it's not sustainable, I think we're constantly in pursuit of that. And as a society, we've sort of trained ourselves, well, you know, the new bro science, uh, cold baths, we're just going to jump in some cold water and resolve all of our issues in the world, you know, based on bro science. I haven't read any clinical research on that, but whatever. Anyways, uh, but it's out there, folks. Read about it. Apparently, it's a big deal. Um, we're not going to be able to do these straightforward, very simple things to resolve very yeah. complex issues. And suffering is a complex feature of our humanity. Uh, and so I think that's the... That's the initial delivery there from, you know, Dr. Alardi. Uh, we have a solution, but it's not the solution, and we got a lot of challenges in front of us. So how do you guys see this now as, you know, within mental health primary patients that were taken into peaks? Um, what are we doing differently? What, what matches about this? Um, and are we in, in disagreement at all about this? No, I, I, you know, I think it goes even back to the personal responsibility aspect of things as well. Um, very transparent right now. When I first um, heard Dr. Alardi speak, I think some of my clinical therapists, like claws came out a little bit where I was like, it's not that easy to just go outside when you're depressed, you know? And, um, but as I've, as I've gotten to know him and gotten to know his approach a little bit more, it directly ties into the personal responsibility of if I want to manage my depression, I do need to get outside. I think even for me personally, like I was telling, I've been doing CrossFit regularly now and I told someone the other day how much I hate that it works because <laughs> it does. Yeah. All of these things, they really do work for us and it's kind of the way that we were made to be is move and be outside in these different things. And so I think going back to personal responsibility is a lot of our program is, hey man, you can sit in this bed all day or you can get better. Or we could go on a five minute walk together and just see the sun, sun for a minute and then you can go back to bed if you need. Having the movement team has been huge. We have an activities team that is very intentional, individualized that'll say, hey, you know, you struggle with getting out of bed. Why don't we just get out of bed and move our bodies for five minutes? It's yeah. just a very intentional approach that I think is more helpful than we could ever imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's this weird, like it's more, it's comp it's complicated but it's also really simple yeah. like there's the um well i mean i just want to address the elephant in the room i was wearing the same outfit in that video <laughs> that i was wearing today i just almost to a tee yeah. oh, almost the jacket. the jacket i have a different very similar jacket and these are actually different boots but very similar boots i just realized i buy a lot of the same stuff so i'm learning a lot about myself You're right a now simple yeah. yet complex yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> Oh my God, that was really beautifully put. You're welcome. Yeah, um, I think it's, uh, you know, when we talk about something like depression in particular and um, 
We don't know. I mean, we really don't. Like, honestly, being on this earth is an absolute nightmare sometimes. But it's also a beautiful experience. You know, there's just this magnificence to it. And, and we live in this sort of dichotomous realm and bounce around and we float around in the middle and we, we struggle and we're alone and then we're connected and then we're lonely even when we're connected. I mean, there's so many different ways in which we engage with the world. And so this idea of like a mono um, therapy being uh, like you can do one thing and feel great all the time. Like even the things that do work like similar to that, like substances don't work. Like it's just not a real thing. Um, it takes everything. It takes a village. It takes multiple different approaches to try to help feel better. And it also takes, um, it takes action on your own part to want to, to heal, you know? Uh, it's the, the sort of like wisdom of your grandmother that Alardi spoke to. It's wisdom because it's true, you know? Like it's, there's true wisdom there. And I think that we like to overcomplicate things because we like to feel complex, you know? We want to be complicated. It makes us feel more special. It makes us feel more unique. And there is so much pressure in society to be special and unique. And goodness gracious, what would it be for us all just to admit that we're still pretty basic, you know? Like, yeah. as part of the evolutionary cycle goes, we're still kind of in the beginning portions of this whole thing. So why can't we accept that? Like, why can't we accept fresh air is actually kind of important? Yeah. Sunlight's kind of important. Right. You know, yeah, walking around the block is actually, that's pretty good. Maybe you should really focus on, you know, not eating all, everything from a drive-thru, right. you know? Like, these are things that, um, problems that we've created for ourselves. Yeah. And um, I think the solutions are usually right in front of us. At the same time, once you get into that state of depression, once you get into that state of, of sort of hopelessness and helplessness, it is so dark and it is so heavy and there is in no way, shape or form am I taking away from the absolute torture of it. And that's when you need other people around you to help you get out of it. Because if you can't get outside by yourself, then you go to a place like Peaks and you have somebody come in and say, I'm going to walk with you. Like you can't do this alone right now, right. but you can do it. And we're gonna, and then you get into the idea, I think Alardi also kind of just broke to like repetition. Really, healing is about repetition. It's about practice. It's about constantly engaging and forming new uh, pathways within the brain and forming new behaviors, forming new thoughts, forming new beliefs, forming new narratives. Um, and we do all get to a point where all of us will get to a point in our lives where we can't do that on our own. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is this, uh, as simple as it is, maybe the, um, the treatment might be, it does not take away from the absolute um, treachery and horror of the actual illness itself that gets you there. So, yeah. 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 Well, and, you know, we, we talked about it on the, the Sebastian Jung era episodes, and for the viewers out there, Dr. Lardy was on that episode. It was, it was great. Um, you know, we talked about, we reviewed the uh, 2012 study of the Addiction uh, Journal of Medicine, you know, that talked about we are in the most sedentary, malnourished, um, you know, uh, poorly nourished, you know, I, I'm running out of all the neat terms that all these people do to describe <laughs> contemporary society. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, even in the book uh, Dopamine Nation, uh, you know, that I've recently jogged through a few times, uh, it, it talks about that we are sitting more, we are sitting 50% more today than we were in 1950. Mm. 
And that's just a 70-year history. Never yeah. mind what the sitting today looks like per our tribal past in that regard. Yeah. And to, the, to, to a large shtick out there, what he's doing is he's reviewing tribal cultures, trying to locate in DSM-5 language, did they have states of depression? Did they experience anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, all these types of things? And what he's discovered in his research is zero rates of depression, zero rates of anxiety. So all of this basic grandmother stuff is what we were doing back then. So what has changed? And for yeah. him, it's civilization has changed, and our biology isn't suited for it. So without further ado, we'll get into this next uh, three-minute clip, Kuv, uh, where Dr. Alardi brings us close to that uh, sort of uh, tribal moment. We, we would have been obliterated as a species. <laughs> yeah tens of thousands of years ago, we never would have made it. We never would have lasted this long. So we know, given how debilitating depressive illness is, we know that our ancestors had to be way less vulnerable than we are. Why? Why do we not have genetic protection? There should have been massive selection pressure to give us antidepressant circuitry to mimic the antidepressant effect of all of our best meds and other best practices. Why don't we have it? We didn't need it. Why? Because the antidepressant was woven into the fabric of our lifestyle. Just like, by the way, interesting, maybe, maybe interesting side note. Did you know that primates that subsist on fruit, I, you, and you're going, this is really random, Steve. I hope you've got a pointer. There are primates, <laughs> relatives of ours, who only live on fruit. They're called frugivores. The genetic machinery that they would normally use to make vitamin C, did you know that most primates have genetic machinery that their bodies can make their own vitamin C? Awesome. But when they became frugivores, now they were getting so much vitamin C in their lifestyle that there was genetic drift. And all the, the genetic machinery to make vitamin C was allowed to basically drift and turn off. There are all these mutations that accrued, and it doesn't work anymore, but it's still there. It's a genetic fossil. Mm. It's in our DNA right now. Every one of us sitting around the circle have basically vestigial vitamin C machinery in our DNA. It doesn't work anymore, even though our ancestors long since went away from being frugivores, they don't have the genetic machinery anymore. So now we have to get the vitamin C from our diet, right? It's kind of like that with us with depression. Our ancestors had, they were like frugivores. They had all the protection, everything built in. And now our environment has radically changed. Why? Because technology, because we learned to become agrarians. And then finally we had the industrial revolution. And the life that our kids lead today would have been unrecognizable to our ancestors. They would look at it and they would be like, this might as well be on Mars. It's so different. <laughs> So what do you take as the most taxing feature in the, in the change, right? Mm -hmm. I, 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 you've talked, at least in, in, while I'm present with you, you've talked a lot about uh, the fight or flight response yeah. as the most taxing feature. And we have it in the tribal cultures, certainly. They're, they have it. We Absolutely. all have it as a genetic code set, right? <laughs> and then we are living in, in the industrial world. And what is, the, what is the tension there? What's creating the most yeah, I love that. Yeah, so it, I mean, it turns out, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that the single most important driver in terms of the neuroscience of depression is not a deficit of serotonin. The single most important driver is the brain's runaway fight or flight stress response that just will not shut down. 
Yeah, and uh, for all the viewers out there, if you're watching Jason Friesma, you saw him. That's what woke looks like. Oh, no. <laughs> he was like, that's it. I think it, it rang a bell. So anyways, joking about Jason, because he's not here. He's not can. here. We love him. He's and great. we love him dearly, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, you know, for the viewers out there, you can, you know, you can go back and review all of the episode. Obviously, he's going to do a much deeper dive into it. But there is a framework for which we're operating here, that there's something about the society that we live in that's, ca that's causing us to live in our limbic system mm -hmm. on a day-to-day, -day, even a moment-to-moment -moment basis, um, where compared to tribal culture, right? If a lion shows up in your tribe, you got to get that lion out of there. You want to be in the fight-or-flight mode, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These very sort of simplistic things. But now it's like, uh, I don't like my job. I'm not satiated. I'm malnourished. I can't afford living. I have no friends. I feel isolated. COVID happens. Even more isolation, lack of friends, lack of communication, all these types of things. And it seems like out of that, broadly speaking, that the driver here is contemporary society is not providing safety in the way that past tribal culture kind of ensured as a very organic way of living life. And that's why it's not recognizable and it's causing many people uh, to suffer in very extraordinary ways across society. And I think that's where I'll stop there as far as like the point goes. But I think what we've done here at you know, peaks in general has tried to say something like, yeah, we want to throw the spiderweb approach because we recognize the uh, amount of energy that any given patient's receiving from civilization like whatsoever. They're getting hit on multiple fronts. It's, it's like very rarely, like, I'm just here because my mom sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of things they're getting hit with. And it also points to the challenges of coming at this with any sort of monotherapeutic approach. So. Absolutely. Yeah, life is rough man like we live i mean safety like really we want to like that's not a thing like we none of us are we don't i don't even know if our society really encourages safety i don't even know if it strives for it at least not american culture i think no. it we we put more um we invest more in the idea that i can face up to anything and that i am uh, like I can defeat the world than we do that I live in a safe place where I don't have to worry about that. Um, we, I think we value um, the, the, the sort of active warrior much more than the peaceful warrior. And because of that, we're constantly living in a state of having to protect yourself. And in having to protect yourself, I mean, especially if you're living in, um, in the fight or flight moment constantly, it's exhausting, you know? And it, and hormonally and neurologically, it's really unhealthy to constantly be in that state. Yeah, yeah and, and just to build on that, I, I think that we are, we live in a world, at least within America, where you're constantly trying to prove you're enough, right? Like, yeah. if you think about social media, you'll post a picture and then you go back, you see how many likes you have, you'll look at it within one minute, right? And that like is supposed to prove that I'm enough. It's supposed to show everybody mm -hmm. that I'm good enough, I'm pretty enough, I'm smart enough, I'm, I'm doing good things in the world, I'm doing all of these things. Like we're constantly just trying to prove ourselves, but I think the question we don't ask enough is to who? Like right. who are we trying to prove ourselves <laughs> yeah. to, right? Yeah. And so it's become, and I think you said it perfectly before, is just we live in a society of shame. Like you always have to be better than the person sitting next to you mm -hmm. when why are we at a competition? Why aren't we working better together? And I exactly. like the tribal yeah. aspect of things because it's like, no, I need you to survive. 
So right. I have to align with you. We have right. to figure out a way to make this work because if we don't, then we're both going to separate and die. Yeah, we and, all die. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. like in, I mean, you can, it's, you just, in back in the, I mean, you just had to be good at getting the water. You know, you didn't have to be good at like taking a selfie, like finding the right whatever, I don't know, what do they call them? Not fonts, but when you put a- Oh, uh, filters. Filter, yeah. I don't have social media. I'm not gonna last in this society. Yeah, but I, have, I have 100% accepted my fate there. And honestly, I think I feel better about it. But uh, um, we just, we have, there's so many like random, um, just constructed expectations that we run into every single day. And we're not designed for that pressure. Evolution, from an evolutionary standpoint, we grew up way too fast, or at least society did, mm -hmm. you know. And then we constructed this world of, uh, I don't know. I guess we've we it, we've replaced safety with productivity and with to what you were saying earlier, instant gratification, yeah. right? Like that's in. It really has. Um, I think that we are just showing the very vulnerable, very vulnerable aspects of that change. Um, and it shows up in our mental health yep. and it's uh, not getting any better. So, and, and one of the, <laughs> one of the challenges that, and I think you highlighted something there, it's, you know, the society is about productivity. So yeah. the way we try to counterbalance the pain of overproductivity is we try to put these annoying messages on our phone that says, oh, my wife's away right now, you know, or the phone's on silent. But that's not the problem with yeah. the cell phones. It's, it's yeah, we're, we've resolved maybe the productivity issue, but to Stephen Alardi's point, the sun helps us know to wake up, and when it goes down, that tells us to go to sleep. Right. But as the sun's going down, our screens are going up. So it doesn't matter if we've dislodged the product. I've kept work over here because it's on silent, but you're just scrolling through the screen the whole time. I don't know how productivity has gone down yeah. in any way, shape, or form, and we've ignored the initial issue. This brightness in my face isn't working at 1045 at night. Yeah. I think another it's thing weird. that I, I heard in a podcast, I'm not going to, I don't know which podcast, so I apologize, everybody. Um, Finding so. things. <laughs> um, is that rejection triggers the part of the brain that kind of um, tells you that you're going to die because way back when we needed each other in order to survive. If we were rejected or we were alone, we would most likely die. And if you think about this idea of productivity, proving yourself, shame, we're always being rejected in every interaction we have because we're always trying to prove ourselves or people are trying to compete with us. And so there's not real connection there either, which veers us off in the wrong direction as well. Man, you are speaking to this man's existential brain right now. I get to see, he's like, ooh, death. Yeah, that is bleak as hell. And also, I'm glad Peaks is around. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and so yeah, and here we go. <laughs> well, there's we, we only have so much time on this episode, so if you all want to hear my existential noise, there's plenty of episodes. Open door policy. That'll Open be episode policy. policy. Yeah. Yeah. Episode 200, we will celebrate <laughs> and all the insights into it. But in, in keeping, uh, you know, the the path forward here, you know, responsibility and accountability to a situation, right? Action, thoughts, emotions, next, right? So it would seem. Um, uh, it would seem like, I don't know, like I lack emotions to say just like, like kind of I think our shame-based society does like get over it, get out oh, of bed, yeah. get the sunlight yeah. in your face and that type of thing. I want to again honor the courage it's going to take here Absolutely. to get well because it's going to suck. And that's kind of the core promise of our industry, right? In the very beginning, what I can promise you 
is it's going to feel terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're going to work from there as a foundation, like outward and right. forward, right? So it's discouraging to think, like, the first thing, okay, well, hit me with the monotherapy. You know, we, I've heard family systems be like, well, the past, he was so stupid. He prescribed the wrong medication. It takes four to six weeks for the med to work in the first place. Mm. So if Johnny responded day one to the new medication, there might be some evidence there yeah. that something differently is going on, right? <laughs> we also know that the second tertiary medications have less efficacy than the first medication in that regard. So uh, chasing the medication kind of lineup there uh, is ineffective, but more to the point, I know we're trying to seek out that first thing that's gonna release this and, and give us relief from our condition, but it's gonna start with a little bit of suffering. And Absolutely. it's gonna take courage to lean into that responsibility, take the action, just to find yourself in a place like Peaks where we're kind of nagging you just to move for five minutes. And, and you know, I really, I think, Warren, you were, the way that you were speaking about um, needing to belong to a tribe is, uh, is really resonating with me right now, especially when you were, uh, with what you were just saying, Brandon. Part of the suffering I think that people experience, while there is definitely physiological suffering when you first start, if you're in going through detox, but part of the mental health portion of suffering when somebody first comes in and is in that stabilization period is this like feeling of absolute loneliness, yeah. right? Being completely disconnected. And when we start to see people feel better is when they start to feel connected again, when they start to become a part of the milieu, when they start to become a part of the community, when they start to become a part of, of um, you know, the, the Peaks tribe, as if you will. And that is when you start to actually see a transformation or the beginning stages of somebody really starting to transform and, and, and find their, and finds that, that first little glimpse of light, you know? And it goes back to uh, the idea that the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And, you know, and what we say is the opposite of suffering is connection. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I really think, uh, you know, just rehashing and kind of going back to these, these videos and these kind of concepts has been, is really interesting because it, it does, I think, really shed a light on uh, the importance and value of, of just being a part of, you know, and how so many people who come to us are, are really in this, this stage of, um, or space of just uh, really desperate loneliness. So. And I've said it before on one of these episodes, but that is such a major part of our program is the community and the connection. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, the way that they speak to each other, I'm. Every, these past couple milieus we've had always refer to each other as a brotherhood. Like this is, we're a brotherhood, we're in this together. We're, we're fighting together. And there's just so much relief in knowing I don't have to do this alone, especially when someone's coming in and they have like, I've been doing this alone for 20 plus years and I just can't anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, you know, and, I, and I think it is, it's been fun for me to kind of roll through these episodes too because it, it it's so much ingrained in company culture, this concept of tribalism, like we're a tribe. Like when I say, you know, dear tribe, you know, we lost somebody close to peaks or, you know, dear tribe, we're under attack, insurance companies, you know, dear tribe, <laughs> right? We're, um, we've incorporated that into our own company culture because there is a sense of safety and belonging that arises from it. We can talk about difficult things. Why? Because I feel safe to do it. And I feel like um, they actually care when I bring up the, you know, the issues and things forward. And I think that also, I think, not just for me, I think we know that falls to our patients at the end of the Absolutely. day. They yeah. see us working well in that together and it's inviting for them mm -hmm. uh, in that way. Uh, so uh, if, if for the viewers out there, if you wanna get close to 
Well, what do those tribal aspects look like? And then where can we find it in today's society? And how would we get access to that? Uh, the Sebastian Junger episode that I did with uh, Dr. Alardi, we go over it there. But Sebastian Junger's books that I've read, uh, War, Freedom, and Especially Tribe, are excellent insights um, into tribalism. And it's a deep dive into military culture where he drives a lot of his evidence from. And then certainly Dr. Alardi's book, uh, The Depression Cure, will give you kind of that evolutionary history of, of tribalism and where it's worked and where the opportunities are today for wellness. Uh, so with that, uh, for all the viewers out there, Brendan Burns, Chief Executive Officer, signing off here. Coop, thank you. Questions at FindingPeaks.com. Questions at FindingPeaks.com, when you submit it, allows us to create future episodes around Absolutely. those questions. We've done that for the, for the kids out there, so keep uh, bringing that to, uh, to our attention. We love answering uh, these important questions. The Facebooks, the TikToks, the Twitters, the yeah. Instagrams. <laughs> We're everywhere, people. Yeah, we're all and over the place. More importantly, we're more positive than all the other places on those social media. <laughs> <laughs> right? We're not For fighting sure. each other. We're not trying to uh, have you come to our side of the street versus the other side. We're just trying to invite you into a really important discussion because mental health, substance use disorder, all of its underlying causes, effects, and whatever, it's a complex picture, and we live in a society uh, that's challenging to work through these issues on. And so we'll invite you into all those things and uh yeah with that until next time love y'all see you soon <laughs> <laughs>